We love to look at the outward appearance of things and we love to live right there. Like that's all there is. But the truth is, it's really the inside that counts. We don't get holy from the outside in. We get holy from the inside out. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, your Word is to be proclaimed. It's the only truth on the planet. It's been said all truth is God's truth, and that's true. And we can know things because, you know, you've given us a reasoning mind, and we can think, and we can even tell one another philosophies of life, and we can be right to an extent with a certain perspective. But we know that the sinful mind is a darkened mind. And even while we hold the truth in our hearts or in our minds, we don't hold them in our hearts. We think and we explain, but unless we're connected to the living God, the the lights are not on the way they need to be. I I know this is true. Because your word proclaims it to be true. I just ask that as we look into the writing to the Ephesians that we would we would open our hearts to the truth. And that we, we would see it for what it is. The way it's proclaimed in your word. Not as if it was coming from us because it doesn't. Real truth. The real light. The complete light comes from the one who is the light. The one who is the truth and the one who is the life. There's only one. And that's the eternal, self-existent God. Without time. Without beginning of days or end of life. The one who's omniscient and knows all things. Who's all-powerful. Who's everywhere present at the same time. Incomprehensible God. You should always get all the glory and not be like the way we look at you. We need to give thanks to you. We don't appreciate what you have done as sinful people. Lord, proclaim your word through your servant. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go into this episode, this uh, podcast, we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians. And in this book, we're going to be asking a couple of questions. And the question we want to ask is, what does an overcoming life look like? And where does it come from? Is it possible to live a truly overcoming life? When Jesus was speaking in parables after the people had become so hardened to what he said and they wouldn't hear what he had to say. He began to speak in parables so that hearing, they wouldn't understand. It's kind of a hard thing. He always explained them, but parables are like allegories, a story behind a story. There's no allegories in the scripture, many metaphors, many word pictures, but except for the parables, there's, it's just plain talk. The only reason it's so hard to understand is because people in a sinful condition, as I prayed, uh, is just very hard to see the light. But uh, as we look at this book of Ephesians, I want us to understand a few things. The first one, and really which carries through all of what I'm going to say, has to do with identification with Christ. What is that? You know, when I ask, what, how, where do you find your identity? What is your identity? 
You know, for some people, it's a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. For other people, it's their family ties or their children. Or maybe it's, you know, just a picture in their mind that they want to attain, but they don't have it. And so maybe their identity is wanting what they don't have. And we can go down so many avenues to find out what are all the possibilities of identity. So I'm asking you, the listener, where do you find your identity? What do you think about when you get up in the morning? What's the last thing you think about when you go to bed at night? What is your identity? And and maybe where you put all your passions, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, is not your identity. But, you know, where do you find the answer to who you are? are what you are. Do you see yourself as one piece of a human race or do you see yourself as just separate and no one like you? You know, Are you living in reality or are you, are you making things up as you go? Well, as we, as we look at this, I want us to understand that in Ephesians chapter 1, our identity is, or the Christian's identity, is in Christ. In Christ. That little preposition is what I want us to focus on as we look through this first chapter. Not all of it, but as I speak through this first chapter, I'll be emphasizing that word in. And and we want to think about what it means. He he begins in verse 3 in a long, unending sentence about the the qualities, the... uh, the, the, the small details about what it means to be a Christian. He says, blessed be the Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, put the blessing on someone, you're wishing them good, and God has the power to do whatever he says, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, So there's the place where it's happening in Christ, and that's where Christ is seated right now. And there's that little preposition, in Christ. No matter where the place is, the main thing that we want to focus on, the main characteristic, our identity, is in Christ. Just as he chose us in him. You see, it's just going to repeat in every phrase throughout this whole entire portion of this chapter that identity is in Christ in him before the foundation of the world so whether it's place or time it finds it's we find our place or the Christian does in Christ that we would be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. It's all about him. The predestination is his, who the sons and the daughters are through Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. It's for, from, through him, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So there's glory in the grace that he's giving something that no sinner deserves. If we got what we deserved, we would go to... hell, and eternal hell, with which he favored us in the Beloved. The Beloved is Christ. So we're favored in him with all that he just said. This adoption and the pleasure for him and the praise for his glory and the grace and his will, it's all in the Beloved. And then he continues, in him. We have redemption. That's being bought with a price through his blood. He poured out his life in suffering so that we did not have to suffer. There's a, there's a sacrifice. There's a switching of our sinfulness that would have taken us an eternity to pay. And he did it because he's God and he's not only in a person, but he's also an eternal, everywhere present being and timeless. Only Christ could go to the cross and pay this price. So he knew when he organized this plan in order to create a people that could not be created any other way than what it was going to cost him. And God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. 
So I can't explain the Trinity, but there is a Father and a Son. The Son went to the cross, and yet God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, which makes sense from the standpoint that God never contradicts himself, and he says he's one God in three persons, and that's what he is. And because you can't understand it, it means he's God. Because if you could understand him, he wouldn't be God. And really understand isn't the right word to use there. It's comprehend. We can understand one God in three persons. We just can't comprehend it. It doesn't, we can't really make sense of it because we don't, we're, we're, not, we're not God and we're not deep enough for that. Leastways, not this side of heaven and, and maybe never comprehend it. In him we have redemption through his blood. And it doesn't make any difference because a Christian knows what's true because it's imparted into him. It doesn't come from within us. It comes from God. And he plants these truths in the heart and mind of a Christian. That's why it's not hard to believe in something you can't comprehend. Because it's not coming from me. It's not coming from human reason even. It's not coming from a, a, an intellectual understanding of certain facts. It's an imparted. Now, in this chapter, we're talking about being in him. But then the reverse will come up before I'm done with this message. And that's that he's in us. This is a two-way street. In him, we have redemption through his blood. That's that buying uh, of, of us through the forgiveness of sins. And, it, and that's what exactly what he says. And this is in verse 7, the forgiveness of our wrongdoings according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Mystery is something that's it's there in the Old Testament, but it can't be seen because we don't have the clarity of which to understand it. And then, as in the crucifixion and the coming of the Messiah, and then he would have to die for our sins, all of that was made known in the New Testament, even though it was actually pro broadcast, proclaimed throughout the Old. So he, he lavished this riches on us and in all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he set forth in him according to his good pleasure which he set forth in him in christ regarding his plan of the fullness of the times that's that christ died at exactly the right time being sandwiched in between the old and the new testament saints to bring all things together in Christ. Keep going back to all and consistently through in Christ. That, that is the identity of the Christian. It's Christ. In Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. So the, the Galatians 2.20 makes sense as we work our way down through Ephesians chapter 1. Because 2.20 says, in, uh, I am crucified in Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I'm, I'm put to death in Christ. I, I, I no longer live. I am in Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, it's, you see how we get lost in one another. The, the believer gets lost in Christ and the Christ is placed in the believer. And this is, this is true identification. True identification in Christ. So that we even lose ourselves. We, we're crucified and placed in Christ as something dead. And Christ is alive and living in us and making us alive. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him. And that sealing is the assurance of salvation. And I don't have time to go into it here. It's not for Christ, God's sake, he is the one who knows everything. He has every hair on our head numbered. And not only that, but every hair on every being on the planet. So you got 
whatever it is, almost 8 billion people in the world, and every single hair, he's got a number for it. And when it falls out, it's numbers taken away, and we grow more, and, and, and numbers come in, and he's got track of all that all the time. He really doesn't need to seal us so that he knows whose we are. Okay, he's got it. He's got it locked. Never forgets a thing. Knows everything. It's incomprehensible. That's God. But when we're sealed, we are given assurance, this in, not innate, but this imparted reality and truth of what's going on. So that I read this, and I know it's absolutely correct. How, how could I possibly know this? I'm not God. I didn't write it, but God's in me. He's in, in the heart and the mind of every true believer. Not people who call themselves believers, but people whom God calls believers. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of the promise, who is the first installment of our inheritance. We only have part, but with that part can come an incredible victory. In regard to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. I'm going to stop there in chapter 1, and we're going to move on to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we're going from this identification by which Paul begins this proclamation of who the Christian is in chapter 1. And then he, he takes a look back. And he sees, how did we get here? What, what's going on? I mean, who are you, you, you're talking to Christians, and what do you mean by this? And so in verse 1 of chapter 2, he goes, and you were dead in your offenses and sins. Wait a minute, you said we were dead in Christ and we we're alive, and now we had to die. What's he mean, and you were dead? And this is in your offenses and sins. This isn't dead in Christ, which is holy, to, to have that uh, impartation of Christ in us and that we're alive in Christ. That's holy. Because God is holy. Be holy as my Father is holy, Jesus said. Because God is holy. And to be placed in Him is to be separated unto Him and is to become holy like He is, if that's a reality. But here, we were dead in our offenses and sins because when there's offenses and sins, that's not true life. That's not the life of God because the life of God is holy. It's pure. It's moral. It's righteous. It, he do, always does what's right. We often do what's wrong, particularly in what we once were, in which you, he says, previously walked according to the course of this world. What's the course of this world? It's dead. It's selfish. It's self-centered. It's proud. It's unwilling to be thankful to God. According to the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, he really calls all the shots. It's not people in high powers in high places. Now, when we look at the world, we see powerful men. We see men with uh, a lust for life and, and passion and desires and greed and and all of these sins that just come out of us, like that's what we are, and so that's what comes out. And so people love to take control, and they start wars, and they do all kinds, get into all kinds of mischief for power. And that's according to the prince of the power of the air, who instigates all this. Because see, a thousand-year millennium is going to come, and it won't be long, I don't believe. And when it comes, they'll be locked up for a thousand years and there'll be plenty, and there'll be peace during that whole entire time. Not just because Christ will be present, not just because all his judges will be in place, not because there'll be a keeping of the law, but because of the absence of the prince of the power of the air. And then Paul goes on in verse 3 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, Among them we too all previously lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by nature children of wrath. That's what we were, just as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings. You see, the idea of works and doing something to gain acceptance by God is just so foreign to the New Testament. We were dead. 
What can a dead man do to please anybody? Nothing. And this is spiritual death, and God is spiritual. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, and that spirit needs to be holy. And it's not made holy by us who are dead. So God being rich in mercy, why do we need mercy? Because we can't approve we can't be approved by anything we do. All we do is wrong. Made us alive together with Christ. There's that identity again. Our identity is Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. In Christ. When he sees us, he sees Christ. We're lost in Christ. That's the identity of the Christian. So that in the ages to come, he might show the boundless riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Ages and ages and never ending. Never ending ages. And why will we be blessed why will we be, because we will be seated with him in the heavenly places and throughout all those ages. And this will show his boundless riches of grace towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith and is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. You don't earn or work for a gift. It's a gift because it's given freely. You don't pay for a gift. It's given, not as a result of works. And does it get plainer than that? Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's no boasting. God created us. We don't create ourselves. We certainly don't create him. A figment of the imagination that says this is God is an idol worshiper. That's an idol, and that's a person who worships an idol. That's where that comes from. It does not come from within ourselves. It is not of yourselves, he says. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I mean, when you repeat yourself twice, like, okay, you need, you need to sit up, and, but every other sentence or paragraph or phrase, it's about in Christ. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. What are we created for? Not sin, not death, not wrongdoing or evil or hate. No, good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them, and we will, that is Christians, for all eternity. For all eternity. That's going to bring us to chapter 3, and we're going to leave what we were looking at as where we were in the past. And we're going to move ahead to the last couple of paragraphs in chapter 3 for a specific reason. Now, we're asking what is a Christian. I hope you're getting a sense of what a Christian is and what a Christian's identity is and that it's in Christ. It's not about us. It's not about what we can do, what we know, how spiritual or how smart or how learned we are, or how biblical even. When, those, when that Bible is for one's own pride, you know, it's not about any of that. It's about none of it comes from us, nothing. Paul asked the Corinthian believers, he said, I mean, what do you have that you haven't received? The answer, nothing. Nothing. Your breath that keeps you alive comes from God. Your muscle tone, your movement, in Him we live and we move and have our existence. It's all about God. All of it. So when he gets to verse 14 of chapter 3, he says this, moving on from identity in Christ. And really, it doesn't move on. I mean, it's still there. But here, there's, a, there's, an, <laughs> there's a, an emphasis, which actually is just magnifying the identity in Christ. But it has a, a little other twist to it that's important for us to know. Where does it come from? So we want power. We want to live an overcoming life. We want to live a holy life. Where does it come from? And he begins in 14 and says, For this reason I bend my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So there's one Father over all. 
We all have earthly fathers, but we all come from one place, the God who said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That's where it started, right there. You talk about fatherhood, father of the human race, he made, he made Adam. We may come from Adam, we may look like Adam, we may sound like Adam, and we might repeat the process again and again and again, but the first one, you know, and it's the first one who's there who owns the thing, and that's God, and he made Adam. So he trumps everything. And that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner self. So now we're going from the outward, which we are great at doing as people. We love to look at the outward appearance of things, and we love to live right there. Like, that's all there is. But the truth is, it's really the inside that counts. We don't get holy from the outside in. We get holy from the inside out. Now, that's a true statement. Not because I made it, but because the, the, the scriptures proclaim that all throughout. It's pictured all throughout the Old Testament. It's explained all throughout the New Testament that Christ wants to work in our heart. And the heart is used over 800 times in the Bible, and it never refers to to that part of us that pumps blood. It refers to what we are in our essence, that we're able to think, that we're able to feel and have emotions, and that we're able to make moral decisions. Now that's the heart, thinking and feeling and making decisions. And there's an order and there's uh, a teaching all around that heart, which I'm not talking about right now, but right now we're talking about the inner self, and that's us. Not the flesh and the blood and the skin and the bones. That's the body. That's the tent. That's the house that we live in. But there's more to us than that, and that's why when the body dies, the person's not dead. You can't see them. They're loosed. And you can't see spirit beings unless they're illuminated and show themselves for what they are. But otherwise, you don't see a spirit. And that spirit goes into the presence of the Lord or it goes to hell, but it's that is what the person is. We are, we are not our body. We are our spirit and our soul. The body is the house. And so he's telling us here about the inner self. So that, he says, listen, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. Now that's a mouthful. But when he talks about the width and the length and the height and the depth, he's not talking in space. He's talking about in spirit. He's talking about something you don't see or hear or feel. It's beyond senses. It's something within us. And we experience it every day because we think and we feel and we, you know, we, uh, we think and we feel and we make moral decisions every day. But he starts off and he moves on from the inner self that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And that dwell is made from a couple of words that when you put them together, it means to settle down. It means to feel comfortable. So we have a house, which is this temple, and our house, our body is said to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we live in it all the time. And Christ wants to come and live in it too, and he doesn't want to feel uncomfortable and leave. He wants to stay there. You hear me? He wants to stay there. Now, when Christ feels comfortable in a house, and he resides in that house like most of the time. Then that person is beginning to feel and experience an overcoming life. He's beginning to overcome sin, <clears throat> excuse me, on a pretty regular basis. It's not, he's not only going in a certain direction, he's experiencing Christ to new heights. And you know, it's almost robbed from us because the teaching and the preaching in this day and age in the 21st century 
in, in the churches is, is so often, you know, we're off with a focus on how imperfect we are. And I'm not even trying to imply that we're perfect. But how imperfect we are, leaving as much room for pos- as possible for doing wrong and evil and sin, is not really according to chapter 2 in the beginning where it's saying such were some of you. He puts an end to that before we even get here. The identity in, in mind, in understanding where we find our identity, is all chapter 1. And then moving on from chapter 1, you're moving, starting to moving into this reality of where we are to live. Or are we are living as a new creation in Christ. That old things are past, have passed away and all things are becoming new. It's passed away. Why? It's passed away because that's not who we are anymore because God creates a new heart in a believer. And in that heart, there's a love for God rather than a hate. There's not an alienation anymore. There's a bond going on between the fa- God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the person in whom Christ wants to dwell so that Christ may dwell. How does that happen? He says, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner self that Christ is doing the strengthening. He's making the place comfortable for himself. Now I'm saying what is meant to happen. We haven't gone into really how that takes place, except that it is a work that Christ does. Remember, we're talking about him as the source of everything we need. And then he he concludes this with this sentence that says, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. This isn't something you think your way into. This isn't something that you have even the capacity to think your way into. This is surpasses knowledge. This is something that Christ does that we may be filled to all the fullness of God. And that doesn't mean all God. That means what we can contain that we could be filled to all that God would fill in us. That's not us containing the oceans or infinity of God. No, that's in our finite being, being full. So that like there's no parts of us from moment to moment, there's no part of us that God isn't controlling, that he isn't bringing this fragrance and this obedience through us. Wow, is that possible? Is that I've never heard of such a thing. That sounds like you're heading towards perfection. All I'm doing is reading the Bible. I'm not speaking for myself at all. This is Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm reading 14 through 19. And right now I'm in 17, 16, 17, 18, and 19, where he's talking about the fact that to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner self so that Christ may settle down, feel comfortable, live in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. This is a love that cannot be comprehended, and that love wants to fill our hearts. So that brings us to the end of chapter 3, to which we're we're now going to go ahead to chapter 5. Chapter 4 is all part of this, and I'm not doing the whole book of Ephesians. What I'm doing is I'm I'm carrying through this theme of identification, of the mind and who we believe and we understand ourselves to be by claiming these promises that are there throughout chapter 1 and how where we got there from where we were as dead in sins and trespasses in chapter 2, a new creation has happened by grace, not works, so that it's by grace that we are saved in, <clears throat> in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, there's this this strengthening and this making us possible to contain the living God in a fullness way. Not just uh, getting saved and we stand at the door and so much of it is such so much of us is still sinful. And we're not comprehending the scriptures and no, we're not understanding with the depth of 
that's necessary for Christ to come and live in our hearts, and not just an understanding, but God working in us even more so, so that he's doing this preparation and this place where he can settle down and feel comfortable and live out his life through us. And again, I'm just reading this. And so he starts chapter 5 with, therefore, be imitators of God. How can you do that? Well, without what we're talking about, you can't. But with the elements that we're talking our way through in this uh, letter, he, he then goes on to say, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. There's that aroma, that sweet fragrance of God. But sexually immoral, immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be mentioned among you. Well, forget about even doing it. I mean, let's not talk, we're not to talk about it. We're not to make it an issue. It's not something we desire anymore. It's dead. That doesn't sound like leaving a lot of room for disobedience. Or, uh, but, uh, but, and not being perfect, but one thing not to be perfect is another thing to live in a way other than this. And he says in, in verse 3, as is proper among saints. What's proper among saints? Well, it's not immorality or impurity or greed. And there must be no filthiness or foolish talk. Not, forget that. Or vulgar joking, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So instead of this vulgarity and this immorality and this joking even, just this lighthearted stuff that we shouldn't do, it's about giving thanks. And if we're, not, if we're not giving thanks to God for the good, for the holiness and purity, the other stuff can fill our hearts. That's not a, that's not a, per, a picture of a Christian. For this you know with certainty that no sexually immoral or impure or greedy person with a, which amounts to an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Wow. So there's the ins and the outs. There's the do's and the don'ts. And uh, if you're a Christian, I, I would highly, highly counsel you to get on board with this kind of teaching that brings you to a place where you can look at yourself and go, yeah, I'm a Christian. Not because of pride, not because I think who I am, but because I'm living by the standards set forth in the Word of God. See that no one deceives you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God becomes on the sins of disobedience. That, that's a check. That's a warning. Yes, there are warnings in the Bible. There's hard talk in the Bible. Why? Out of love. You know, a good person doesn't want to see another person fall off the cliff. Don't, Cliff, don't go there. Get away from that side before you fall down. That's that a little harsh, brother. Better than him falling down. Therefore, do not become partners with them. So this is about getting away from the world. And that's what we are. We're called out of the world. And then going on in verse 15, so then be careful how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Now this is a person who's walking in such a circumspect way, watching his steps, being careful to live as he is called to live, not as what he once was, but what he's becoming by the grace of God. And it's, he's doing it in a way that he's careful about it. What happens when you care less? You make mistakes. You do things wrong. You feel bad. You look at what happened. It's like, man, I, couldn't I be better than that? Well, if you had been careful, maybe it would have been better. But you would care less. I'm talking to like children. So then be careful how you walk. Not as unwise. That's fool. One who says there is no God. One who lives like it. Not as unwise people, but as wise. There is a God. And not only can he make you capable of living a godly and a holy life, he can condemn you to an eternity in hell. Making the most of your time, verse 16. Well, that doesn't leave a whole lot for just throwing it away. Which we can do so easily in this world because we have so many toys in America. And you don't need toys. You can flitter it away doing anything. Because the days are evil. The days are evil. I don't think we realize just how evil they are. 
but without going there right now, therefore do not be foolish. He says it. Don't think there is no God and that the end is not coming. Do not be foolish and don't live like a fool. You can think yourself a religious person, which Jesus hated the religious of his day. He called them hypocrites. Saying something with every intention of doing the opposite. They were liars. They were deceitful schemers. They're foolish, and not only foolish, but they're ravenous wolves. He just had every evil thing to say about the religious of his day. He said, you travel across sea and land in order to get to make one convert, and when you make him a convert, you make him twice the citizen of hell that he was before. Those are harsh, but they're true words. And they're meant to make people who are living like that to turn around, stop doing that before it's too late. Save yourself. Repent of your sin. Turn away from your sin and put your faith in the person who is nailed to a cross to take the price of your sin and its wages. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, okay, here we go. We always want to know what the will of the Lord is, especially Christians, so we can pray in the will of the Lord and we can get answers. Well, here it is. Here's how we understand the will of the Lord. What is the will of the Lord? The will of the Lord is, do not get drunk with wine. That's excess. An excess, he says he calls it debauchery here, is the main thing here is using something which could be good. Wine, you know, there's much verses in the Old Testament talking about how it, it lightens the heart and it makes you glad. And that's not talking about alcoholic wine. You know, the wine was so diluted back in those days. I mean, it was like 20 times diluted. You know what it is now. I mean, you don't have to drink a whole lot of wine to get tipsy, let alone hard liquor or even beer. I mean, you drink those things and unless you're 400 pounds, you know, it's going to hit you pretty hard pretty fast. He's saying it's not, about, it's not about the drunkenness here, even though it's saying do not be drunk. He's saying do not get drunk with wine, something that really is meant could be good and make the, jo- the heart joyful and turning it into something that it turns you into a selfish, self-seeking, incapable of knowing what's right and wrong, and you know how drunks can be, and they just go off and do things and say things without any thought about hurting another person. This is not meant to live our lives that way. We're meant to live our lives wholly for the love of others, to love others, to die to ourselves and put others first. How does that happen? And here he says it. But be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to our God and Father, and subject yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. Now all of that, of what we do, what it turns out, comes out of being filled with the Spirit. Now, this is something that has a lot of misunderstanding in our day. And I'm going to put, and and I'm sorry for putting pigeonholing and making boxes, and I'm going to use two terms that will offend two parties, but I'm just saying there's what I'm going to call the conservative right and the liberal left, and on the conservative right you have the, the Baptist or Baptistic conservative way of looking at Scripture, and then you have the charismatic or liberal uh, way of looking uh, with regards to, you know, gifting and, and all of that. And, and, and it's the spiritual versus the intellectual. And the intellectual says, you know, we, we receive the Holy Spirit at baptism when we're born again. And that's absolutely true. And that's the end of it. You don't need to seek anymore. And I'm not saying every single last person, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to put boxes. I'm just using that for categories. Because they, you know, on the one side, you know, there's been so much mischief and so much wrongdoing on, on the other side. 
And that's a whole other case why that is. But on the other side, it's all about being spiritual. It's all about getting the second blessing. And so you get saved and you get baptized and then you wait for the second blessing. And when you get the second blessing, now you're in. And now you need to be what you are and you, you go with the Spirit. And both are wrong. Both are absolutely wrong. How do, how do I know that? Because it says, and be filled with the Spirit. And, and you don't get it in English, but in Greek, what you have is the, 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 the present continuous tense. And it's an imperative mood. So it's a command, be filled, and it's be filled with the Spirit on an ongoing basis. That's exactly what it means. In, in Greek, that's exactly what it means. Be being filled. Well, how does that happen? Well, you have to keep short, very short account of sin. And you know, that's what happens when a person gets saved. And that's a one-time deal. And you get saved, you're at the foot of the cross and you're in tears. And if you're like me, you have the weight of the world sitting on your shoulders and you know you're a sinner and you know you're going to hell and you just have to escape this thing. And so you cry out to God, oh God, help me. And I just got heard the preaching of the cross, and I saw my sin and all of that, and what happened? I was filled with the Spirit. God had already changed my heart, or else I wouldn't have been able to cry out like that. He had already given me, at a very recent, you know, had given me a new heart, that, and I didn't even realize it. And this happens with every single last Christian. He creates a new heart, and then at, at salvation, the person cries out to God with that new heart and is filled with the Holy Spirit. In case you didn't know that that's what happens, that's what happens. Now revival on an individual basis is just a moment to moment, hour to hour, day to day, crying out, being she keeping short accounts of sin so that the sin gets marginalized and put out of our life. What? By the power of the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell, make himself comfortable, strengthen us on the inner man. And that strengthening is also part of what keeps us focused on short, brief accounts of sin. Always looking at sin. Yeah, I can't go there. Until you get to the place where the Holy Scripture, if you read it enough and you pray enough, and all of this is worthless without prayer. Pray, pray, pray. It's not not how long. Yes, it is. No wife wants her husband to come in. Hey, how you doing, hon? Give her a quick hug and then go do what you want to do. And that's love. That's not love. Love isn't short. Love is let's spend the night together. Let's go on a date. Let's spend the whole day together. Let's spend time together. That's love. Don't say you love God and and you spend a couple of minutes in prayer, and you never think about him the rest of the day. This is not love. Love is spending long periods of time that you can afford, that you can force into your life, even if it means pushing television or something else out. And you spend that time with God, and, and from that time, all day long, there's thoughts of God coming into your mind and helping you through that day, and mostly to keep short accounts you're getting angry, or you're getting lustful, or you're getting greedy, or you're getting proud, and all of these things press in on you and tempted from you and from the devil and from the world, and you, and you get to the place where you get strong in the inner man, and you just put up your hand and say, no, 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 no to the, no to the greed, no to that, no. And, and because you're filled with the Holy Spirit and power over a period of maturing and understanding these principles and applying them, then you go from, you know, just so imperfect that you just look like the world and are living like it, to a direction and not perfection, but filled. God coming down, feeling comfortable, sitting in your heart, living there, directing you. Your conscience becomes clear. You hear the voice of the Holy Spirit all day long, not doing that, not thinking that. Not to overstep in the line. I'm here. I'm right here, and this is where I'm staying. Be angry and don't sin. Let don't let the sun go down in your wrath, and give no place to the devil. And that's all day long. And don't tell me you can't live like that, because most of the time that's how I live now. It took me quite a while to get here, but I have to tell you, I had to really struggle to get good teaching and to study for myself, because I'm sorry, but I just don't hear it a lot. I hear Martin Lloyd Jones. I I hear and I read books from uh, three and four and five hundred years ago, 
And, you know, there's an awful lot in John Owen's teaching and, and those Puritan guys and those reformers, and they say quality things. And, but if you hop around in churches today, you're going to get some real fancy music and you're going to get like what looks like praise. But when it comes to getting some meat that's going to give you victory from day to day, yeah, not so much. And I'm not here to criticize anybody. But there is a way which is healthy and good and leads to an overcoming life, and there's a way that doesn't. And I'd rather proclaim the way that does, and whoever might be hearing this might humble themselves like we all need to do every single day and say, this is beyond me. I can't do this. The only thing that I can do is I can, is I can pursue God with all my heart and ask him to do this in me. That's all. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Ephesians. I thank you for the way it just flows right through to the end and leads to spiritual warfare and putting down the, uh, the devil by putting on the armor, which can't be done unless we go through what preceded it in the book of Ephesians. We need to be so strengthened that we can carry the armor. David couldn't carry Saul's armor. You know, it just it wasn't going to work. Yeah, grow up. And uh, Saul, uh, Saul was a big man, let alone Goliath, but Saul was a head and shoulders about, above most men. And so Lord Christ is pff, infinitely bigger than we are, and uh, we're, we're told to put on Christ, not like armor, it's not a physical thing, we don't war in the flesh. But the, the, war, the, the weapons of our warfare are mighty through the Lord. We know Christ is our, our armor, he's our sword, he, he's our strength, he's everything. He is Jehovah Jireh, he's the one who provides. He, he is the I am that I am, he's, he's everything to us. Lord, make him everything in our mind's eye, in our heart, that we might trust in him, that we might apply a faith to these godly principles, to these scriptural, biblical principles, that in the end we might live so completely for you that we'll actually look like a Christian should. I ask these things, Lord, for your honor, for your glory, and for your pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.